Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hello again, everyone. Welcome to episode 13 of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we are reading and discussing week 12 of Lovable's companion book, which is entitled The Voice of Grace. So I have this friend named Craig who told me this podcast stinks. Now, I know he was half joking because I was beating him in bowling at the time and he was trying to distract me. Um, I ultimately rolled a strike and beat him quite badly. (laughs) (laughs) But he was also half serious. Um, He's a smart guy. He's a thoughtful guy. In fact, he's the person in uh, in chapter 21 of Lovable who I describe as a shining example of friendship and belonging. So when he challenges me, I listen because I know he loves me too. Um, And this was his challenge. Kelly, each episode right out of the gate, you got to tell us the problem you're going to help us solve that week. It's good advice. Um, So here's the problem. We're going to solve this episode, okay? When that voice in your head that is always telling you in one way or another that you're not good enough, that voice we call shame, when it dies down for just a moment, what do you do in that moment? And how can that moment change your life? Before we talk about that, though, remember these podcasts are being recorded every Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock Central Time or Chicago Time on Facebook Live. If you want to join us, you can go to face, uh, my Facebook page, which is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, at 9 o'clock on Wednesdays to tune in. We had several people join us for the first time today. One person participated that I know of for sure. I think actually multiple. Um, and uh, it was great to have them on board. It's never too late to join in. So uh, so feel free to, to join us on Wednesdays at 9. If you want to be kept up to date about the recordings, the podcast, my blog, whatever, make sure you're subscribed to my weekly newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday morning. If you aren't already subscribed to that, you can go to drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com and sign up in the right sidebar. You'll get one weekly email, uh, a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto, and a free sample of Lovable. So lots of good stuff there. We'd love to have you join us and, and follow along. Um, Now remember, this podcast focuses on the year of listening, loving, and living, which is an unpublished companion book um, to to Lovable. I think companion is probably a bit too strong of a word. It can stand on its own, um, but it it stands a little taller and a little stronger, I think, on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you still need to pick up a copy of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available in paperback, digital, audio, wherever books are sold, so however you like to listen to or read books. You can, uh, can do it that way, and, uh, and you can pick it up from uh, anywhere that you like to buy books. So if you've got a favorite uh, small independent bookseller, go, go help them out. Now let's go make Craig happy, <laughs> all right? The problem, I've got a voice in my head telling me I'm never good enough. The solution, the voice in your heart telling you that you are lovable and beloved. As always, thanks for tuning in. Let's get into it. Hello, Facebook Live. Uh, we've uh, been on a two-week holiday hiatus. It's great to be back here with you recording the 13th episode of the Lovable Podcast. 
Uh, we're going to dig into week 12 of Lovable's companion book this week, which is entitled simply, The Voice of Grace. Over the course of these months of listening, we've been steadily turning down the volume on all the voices around us and within us that drown out the one voice we need to be listening to. Now today, we're going to talk about listening for that one voice. Before we do so, though, let's take a few minutes to review your experiences so far. How are you doing? What's happening for you in these months of listening? What insight and encouragement do you have for those out there listening in? While you're thinking about that, I'm gonna, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about probably what impacted me the most over the holidays in our three weeks off. Um, I saw a YouTube video, um, a TED Talk, by a man named Tristan Harris, and he uh, is a former Google ethicist which means he was part of a team that's in charge of, was in charge of helping Google figure out how to implement their technologies ethically. And um, I took away several things from his talk. I'm not, I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing, but what I took away was that um, our technologies are not neutral. Uh, the people who are designing those technologies, their, their main agenda is to schedule themselves into a little bit of your time, a little bit more of your time that uh, one of the most finite resources on the planet is human attention and uh, and everyone is vying for your attention everyone is trying to increase their market share of your attention and that the most effective way to get your attention is to appeal to the lowest level of the brainstem the most instinctive emotions fear and outrage being the two big ones um, so he said for instance if facebook could present you with a a Facebook feed that the algorithm uh, uh, emphasized content that created a sense of peace and well-being versus a feed that uh, cultivated a sense of anger or outrage or fear, they'd show you the outrage feed every time because that's going to be more likely to capture your attention and keep it. That was sort of startling for me. I don't like to be controlled. <laughs> um, I'm increasingly aware that I'm not in control, but I don't like to be controlled by others. So this idea that somehow this technology is without my awareness uh, controlling me um, and influencing my decisions is, was something that I wanted to push back against. Um, he said that, uh, for instance, uh, what happens is, I think it was YouTube that first started auto-playing videos once a video was done. And then Netflix looked at that and said, uh-oh, YouTube has just increased their market share of people's attention a little bit more. Um, and so we need to start auto-playing our videos. And then Facebook said, oh no, our, our, our videos and our feeds don't auto-play. You have to click play when it enters the feed. So now let's auto-play them as soon as someone slows down in a feed. Because we got to get that market share back. Um, he talked about how the uh, the CEO of, of Netflix uh, has, has said their three biggest competitors are YouTube, Facebook, and Sleep. Um, because if they can reduce the amount of time that you sleep, they actually increase the amount of a finite resource, which is human attention. It's a very startling video to watch and uh, seemed to really tie in with what we've been trying to do here over these months of listening, which is creating and cultivating a space where all the various voices that want to increase their market share of our attention, we begin to, to, um, to shift our attention from those voices to the voices that are going on inside of us. And now, what we're starting to talk about today is that there are essentially two voices inside of us that are vying for a market share of our attention. Um, and that one is particularly aggressive. One wants to control your attention. That's the voice of shame, which we've started to talk about. But that there's this other voice that is just waiting for us to say, no, shame, you don't get as much of my attention today. 
Um, I'm going to begin to give my attention to another voice inside of me. Um, so that's the shift that we're making today. And it's just interesting to think about how that's playing out in the real world and our technologies and how it plays out internally inside of us. So um, I've chatted for a while and I'm going to scroll back and pick up some comments and hear what you guys have to say about practices. Teresa writes, heard a great quote that reminded me of lovable. We need to learn to respond to the sin, not to the shame. Mm. Well, right. So, um, Teresa, you, you know, and sin's a loaded word. Shame's a loaded word. Could mean a bunch of different things for a bunch of different people. Um, but one useful way to think of those is that um, shame is the sense that I am bad and sin is doing something bad. Well, when you do something bad, um, you can correct it. You can apologize. You can redeem it. Uh, you can um, confess it and so on and so forth. But when you are something bad, there's a sense that there's not a lot to do with that. Um, that I am something bad, I've been something bad from the beginning, and I'm going to be something bad to the end. Um, so ironically here, um, the concept of, of um, sin is more, um, more amenable uh, to redemption and to healing than shame. And so that's what we're doing here is we're starting to kind of question the underpinnings of the shame belief uh, because it can be so intractable. Um, and it's part of what we want to do in these months. Julie writes, reflection on practices. I've been sitting daily for over 300 days now and the most common reflection is this. My desire to continue the streak regularly overcomes my reluctance to do something that's good for me. Some days are easy, some are hard, some insightful, some half-hearted, sometimes a fury of thoughts, sometimes lost in thoughtfulness. I love that. It speaks to something that I'm, I'm sort of wrestling with right now, um, Julie, which is that um, my ambition often leads to really good things. Um, in your case, your ambition to continue your 300-day your streak is leading to you doing something that is absolutely good and healthy, um, but it's a more powerful motivator even than your desire for self-care, right? Um, and so I find myself these days sort of thankful for the good things that ambition has produced in my life, and yet wanting to make sure that I'm in charge of the ambition and, and not the other way around. Um, because it can produce 300 days of sitting, but it can also produce 365 days of running um, and chasing. And we want to be aware of that and, and, uh, and be in charge of that rather than having that, that in charge of us. But I appreciate the comment and, uh, and this concept that you've sat for 300 days and you notice the full, full range of human experience. Um, and that's what this is about. It's about not becoming more happy. It's about becoming more human, right? Um, and discovering that in that, there is a kind of happiness that um, is more steady and stable than anything else. Deb W writes, for me, again, the practice of viewing your thoughts as a river and the real you examining them from the bank, not being rushed away with them. Um, Deb, it's okay to mention it again. Um, I would expect actually that what happens over these months of listening, loving, and living is that out of 52 practices, say, there might be a handful that sort of stick as lifelong practices that can, can be life-changing practices for each person. And between two different people, there may be no overlap in what those practices are. Um, and so the fact that you've identified one that is consistently helpful and healing for you is, uh, is normal. And I'd want to encourage everybody to do that. If you find one out of 52, um, that helps uh, transform your experience. Stick with it and do that one. Julie writes, I love how you just reframed the companion book as a toolbox of useful practices. Yeah, Julie, thanks. I guess thanks for um, 
naming that reframe and putting words to it. It I don't want yeah I don't want to treat it as um, you have to. Um, it's not another. It's not, it's not a rule book, right? It's not. You have to do each of these 52 practices consecutively, and then you'll get this, um, like a vending machine. It's um, these these practices sort of cover the range of human growth um, and cult- cultivate the range of human growth. But wherever you're at right now, whatever speaks to you personally, that's the one. To, those are the ones to focus on and, and keep keep using. Julia writes, also makes it a handbook handbook worth revisiting from time to time. Yep, yeah, um, yeah, definitely not something I think that you go once through. Um, you might discover later on that um, that a different exercise speaks to you in a way that it didn't in a previous year, and uh, and that's that's exactly how it probably um, should work. So, um, yeah, I, thanks for again, Julie, for for reframing it like that. Jennifer writes, the holidays are a worthy opponent to self care. <laughs> that's uh, uh, I get a kick out of your comment already, Jennifer. The holidays are a worthy opponent to self-care and self-reflection. One of the first things I did after they were all over is catch up on the podcast. Very centering. Oh, thank. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Jennifer. I'm glad I could sort of reconnect you with you. Uh, yeah, a lot. The demands, the expectations of the holidays um, are a truly a worthy opponent to self-care and self-reflection. Um, and an, another thing that I found myself reflecting on an awful lot is um, how can you know, um, how can how can you begin to shape the holidays in a way that you actually look forward to them, um, not out of some romanticized idea about what they'll be, but out of a sense that they they could be truly a restful, um, restorative time, actually, as they were originally intended to be. So, um, a, a good challenge to us, um, but but definitely <laughs> um, glad to hear that you were able to get recentered afterwards. So Brenda, um, talking about the holidays, writes, uh, regarding reflection of holidays, I enjoy filling in a family Christmas journal after the holidays. Don't try to do this if it's not your thing. Oh, Brenda, I try to do that every year with my, with my, with my family, and it's not their thing, but it's mine. So I've learned to do that privately. <laughs> so it's good advice if it's something that helps sort of uh, integrate the memories and solidify them, uh, the things that you want to remember, the things that you've learned, do it. Um, but don't try to make other people do it with you if they don't want to. <laughs> You'll get lots of eye rolling, trust me. Deb F., referring back to the Tristan Harris video, writes, Wow, Kelly, that scary stuff reminds me of the news on TV as well. Rarely do they report happy and positive. It is our fear that keeps us glued more than not. Yeah, the it's not just social media. It's, um, at this point, media in general. Um, media has to, to keep, keep your attention. One of the things that I've noticed, for instance, um, it, and I, I, because of the Tristan Harris video, uh, what I did was I decided I'm going to get all of my news from from one journalistic source, um, and I'm not going to be constantly uh, checking news feeds like my you know Apple News and CNN and all these these different essentially news feeds because when you uh, when you focus on one journalistic source, uh, journalism takes time, and so you don't have a news story every hour. Uh, you have a couple of new stories every day, and what happens is you go back and you and you go to check for uh, get your fear outrage dosage, you know, which ironically produces adrenaline and dopamine, which um, can feel good. Um, and you go back and there's no new, there's no news for the last six hours, and so you begin to get deconditioned from checking for that for that hit of um, of fear or outrage. So um, that's something I've been doing to to try to uh, detox a little bit from the constant constant media feed. 
and I don't blame them, frankly. I mean, they that's their jobs. They have to make money. They're doing what we're all doing, which is trying to increase market share of attention. Um, you hope that they do it ethically. Um, but, you know, we, we get the... We get the media that we ask for, essentially. Deb W writes, this all reminds me of your week three, I think, practice about decluttering our minds from information overload, reminding us to take control of what influences us. Yeah, I think that week three, uh, and I appreciate you uh, being able to identify that, Deb, I think that week three, increasingly, in my mind, is important. Because once, once our minds have been trained by media, to uh, to look for the next thing to be afraid of or outraged about, um, we don't need to be exposed to media for our minds to continue doing that. Um, we we then start to look for that in relationships, in day to day life, um, and everywhere else. We're we're looking for that next hit of arousal, and uh, and so we do need to we need to detox um, so that we can in in the other spaces beyond media begin to sort of return to a baseline level of calm um, that, uh, that just we don't find possible when we're constantly being encouraged to be aroused. Deb writes, yes, detox, great word. I have found myself moving toward exactly that, detoxing from a lot of things these days and listening more to the voice within. Deb, that might be our segue <laughs> to this week's uh, content. So as I've said, all of this uh, beginning to withdraw our attention from the voices around us and within us is is really building up to this week's reading um, and this week's practice. So we're going to transition into that now. Um, but as always, before I do that, I want to connect this piece of the companion book back to Lovable. And in this case, it's actually super easy to do. There's a direct parallel in Lovable. Um, and it's the beginning of chapter 10 of Lovable. Uh, that chapter is entitled, The Good News That Sounds Too Good to Be True. So I'm going to read the beginning of that chapter for you. The good news that sounds too good to be true. When a great moment knocks on the door of your life, it is very often no louder than the beating of your heart, and it is very easy to miss it. Boris Pasternak. It's another Monday morning, another drive to my daughter's preschool, and presumably yet another spin of the Frozen soundtrack. Instead, on this morning, Caitlin opens a book and announces she's going to read me a story. She's four. She can't read, but she begins anyway. The story doesn't make much sense, but it's filled with intrigue and love and wounds and forgiveness, and I'm enjoying it immensely when a new character enters the story and abruptly, Caitlin stops and growls at herself. Ugh, she mutters. I see her solemn face in the rearview mirror, and I raise my eyebrows in a question. She knows what I'm asking and answers me with this. I told the wrong name. I'm quiet for a moment and then ask as gently as I can, but sweetie, you can't read. How could you say the wrong name? And she looks at me like I'm an adult who knows a lot of things but has forgotten the most important ones and says, Daddy, I quit listening to my imagination. As she begins to read again, I realize I was wrong about what's happening in the back seat. She's not making it up, she's letting it out. She's not deciding who she wants the characters to be. She's listening to who they already are. She's taking dictation from a voice she listens to on the inside, a voice that already knows the name of every character. And maybe it's that simple. Maybe, just maybe, the spark of God at the center of you doesn't just glow, it also speaks, unceasingly, of your worthiness. Maybe the spark of the God who is love is always telling you about the lovely soul you are. To hear this voice of grace is to be loved and to know the name of the character you are and the story you are living. It's the name you were given before all other names. You are lovable. The problem is, somewhere along the way we stopped listening to this voice of grace. Or rather, we began listening, instead, to the voice of shame. 
It's the choice we made before we knew there was a choice to make. We chose to quit listening to the voice telling us we're lovely and started listening instead to the voice telling us we're a loser. That's how we forget who we are, but it is also how we remember who we are. We don't have to try more strenuously. We simply need to listen more closely. So that concept is the anchor uh, of these months of listening and uh, um, all this preparation we've been doing to listen more closely is, is sort of where we're at. So I'm going to go ahead and read this week's reading from the companion book and, uh, and then I will scroll back and, and pick up some of your comments. Week 12, The Voice of Grace. It's 9 p.m. and I walk in the door, still carrying the burdens of a day at my office. The kids are already in bed, eyelids heavy but holding out for a good night from daddy. My wife is tired but smiling and happy to see me, and I don't want any of it. I stomp around, tearing open mail, griping about food that isn't in the fridge, acting like a serious jerk. And in some secret place inside of me, I know it. Somehow this only makes it worse. I wait for the reprisal from my wife, the well-earned reprisal. The angry, I don't deserve this, but it isn't forthcoming. Instead, she kisses me on the cheek, says she loves me, and goes to bed with the same smile on her face. I stand by myself in the kitchen, but I have two companions, my bad mood and my wife's grace. Psychologists are trained in an endless list of interventions for changing people, but the truth is they all pale in comparison to the most powerful tool at our disposal. We call it by many names, empathy, acceptance, and unconditional positive regard, but it all boils down to this. The therapy room is a pocket of grace in a condemning world. Does that sound like a ripoff? After all, people come to us to be healed, right? How will anything be fixed, changed, improved, transformed, or redeemed if people are allowed to stay exactly the way they are? I understand the feeling. I felt it. But I can tell you now, grace isn't just acceptance of the status quo. Grace contains the status quo. All of our struggle and pain and mess, and embraces us and values us anyway. Grace demands that nothing be changed for love and connection to happen, and that kind of love has power. In the presence of grace, we are given permission to be our fullest selves, that complicated amalgam of mess and beauty, shame and glory. In the presence of grace, we can allow the wholeness of our humanity to be seen. We reveal our sputtering rage, anguished tears, petrified fear, crudest and rudest sentiment, most bizarre interest or deepest embarrassment. And then we look up, and grace looks back. It isn't cringing or horrified or judging or saying in a reasonable tone, well, once we figure that out and change it, then you and I can get along all right. Instead, Grace looks back with a calm admiration, probably even a smile in its eyes, and it says, there you are. I've been waiting for you, and you're welcome here, all of you. You are beloved. This is the brilliance of Grace. It welcomes our darkness into the light and does nothing to it, knowing that it doesn't have to, because darkness thrives on hiddenness, and it's at the mercy of the light. Light drives out darkness, not the other way around. When we no longer have to push our darkness back down beneath layers of shame, our darkness doesn't stand a chance. So I stand in the kitchen with my bad mood and my wife's grace, and the brilliance of her love quickly becomes clear. Her attack would have only rooted me deeper in my anger. Instead, she has given me acceptance in the midst of my anger, the space to feel it and experience the fullness of myself. I still feel grumpy, but I discover there is something else there inside of me. I want to apologize. So I go to the bedroom and I tell her I'm sorry and her response is quick and her grace is complete. You had a long day. You're allowed to be in a bad mood and you're a good man. I knew you'd apologize. My wife saw my goodness even in the midst of my junk. She believed in my light even when all she could see was darkness. She believed in who I am and who I can be even while I was acting like someone else.
I used to say I believe in grace. I don't say that anymore. Now I say I have known grace, and what I know is this. Grace believes in me. The healing power of grace does not end with the embrace of our darkness. When we experience grace, when our true self is finally allowed to the surface, we discover all sorts of beautiful things entwined with our darkness, like dragging the ocean and coming up with a bunch of seaweed and some invaluable pearls. As grace calls our true self forth, we discover magnificent parts of us we didn't know were there, passions built into us, a purpose sewn into our DNA. Our identity is washed clean and we begin to see ourselves for what we inherently are, creators of beauty and abundance. We no longer dismiss our ability to contribute in loving ways to a crumbling world. We take the grace inside of us, it becomes our guide, and we become it. We quit dead-end jobs and risk our family's financial security to earn a teaching degree. We stop drinking and we start coaching. We quit living at the office and we invest in the life of our family. We trade in fear for boldness. We quit hiding in our homes and we start risking in the world by uncaging our ideas and our creativity. We stop waiting on perfection and we start waiting into the mess. When we quit seeking change and begin to seek grace, we let go of our frantic efforts to be like someone else and we discover a blessed peace with who we are, finally. So that is this week's reading, um, and I am, um, as always, uh, curious to hear your reactions. Julie writes, Grace, self-care, semi-OT, sometimes saying someone else needs to engage in self-care becomes an excuse to withhold grace. That points to an odd tripping point, but lacks nuance or acknowledgement of so many other uh, cases. Boy, that's a great, um, the impulse to give people solutions the impulse to uh, tell people what what will fix their problems um, is sometimes not only what a person doesn't need, what they're needing is grace. Um, they're needing someone to sit with them and say, um, even, even with your problems, I want to be with you. Um, so, so not only do sometimes people not need that solution or fix right away, but sometimes it's counterproductive because... Uh, one of the, the, the outcomes of grace is a deeper sense of, of knowing and a deeper sense of intimacy. If I'm willing to sit with you in your problems, I get to know them better. And all those things that I thought were problems at the beginning actually aren't. It's this other thing instead. And so it really does always have to start with grace. Um, I, I, I'll give you a, a, an example. I think probably the time when I was able to identify that I was hearing the voice of grace through someone else um, for the first time in my life, I and I may have shared this here before. I was I was in therapy, and uh, I was saying something, and my therapist said, "Kelly, are you are you like scared that you're you're a pretty arrogant person?" And I said, "Yeah," extra sheepishly, I admitted, "Yeah, I think I think that's one of my big fears." And he and he looks at me and he goes, "I I think you are arrogant, just about as much as the rest of us," and. It was such a graceful thing. It was, yeah, you got some of that in you, um, but we all do, and uh, and so you're not alone in that. Um, yeah, it's such a graceful, a graceful thing. And uh, of course, arrogance when you have it is a, a way to protect insecurity. So all of a sudden, grace comes along and says, no, you don't really have such a huge reason to be insecure, and now you don't need to be as arrogant. You don't need to be as protective. So, um, so grace transforms without directly trying to change anything. Oftentimes. Julia writes, this is everything. My husband and I went through a hard time a year ago and have been working very hard on our relationship. Acceptance is the key. You know, you take marital therapy in general and you look at the way that's changed over the years. So uh, marital therapy as a, 
as a thing started in the early 1970s, um, shortly after divorce rates skyrocketed, and psychologists said we need to help people with their marriages. And the, the initial emphasis of marital therapy was on behavioral change, stating what I wanted to see change in my partner. Um, and then both spouses sort of keeping track of if that was happening was one of the, the interventions that was probably counterproductive. Um, and that, sh- that has shifted dramatically. Um, and the, the focus in, um, in scientific circles at this point on, in, in, in developing marital therapies is much more about acceptance um, obviously not accepting unacceptable things like abuse, um, but um, accepting those things about our partner that are a represent- representation of who they are. Um, they're not who we are, and uh, we'd like to make them more like us, but uh, being, being able to provide that acceptance and that grace to, to enjoy them for who they are um, is, a, is a huge part of it. Um, and then all of a sudden, sort of like in this story, uh, you receive a little bit of grace, and all of a sudden you go, I sort of want to grow. <laughs> I don't have to defend who I am anymore. Um, I just get to become a better version of it. So um, it is, uh, Julia, in your words, I think it is It is everything. Um, and uh, it's the beginning and the end of things. Deb W. writes, a pocket of grace in, in a condemning world. To be able to lead from this point of acceptance and grace is life-changing with every relationship. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think what we're trying to do in a therapeutic relationship is... Um, is to embody the ideal corrective emotional experience and the ideal corrective relationship. Um, and we don't always succeed as therapists, of course, um, but it's it's what we're aiming toward in therapy and why can't we be aiming towards that in every relationship, right, Deb? Um, I think that's exactly right. Emily writes, I experienced this just this morning when a friend told me she has anxiety around perfection. I immediately wanted to try to help her with it. Grace was the response she needed. Yeah, um, it sounds like you had a, this awareness going into it, Emily. Um, what a what a gift to your friend. Um, and I I know I've shared this before on the podcast, but uh, you know I go back to Henry Nouwen's care versus cure, right? That cure is how can I fix you? Care is how can I be with you in your struggle? Um, and there's a time for cure. Uh, but it almost always follows care. <laughs> and uh, so your friend got to experience that with you this morning. Emily writes, my husband is a police officer. The acceptance you talked about in Lovable with your wife's response has helped me to be more accepting of who he is when he gets home from work. Um, and I can't see the rest of your comment, Emily. Um, but certainly a police officer works in one of the most stressful jobs um, in the history of mankind. And I would imagine that, that some of that baggage comes home with him. Um, and, you know, the, the challenge is always in those situations is to find a balance between the grace that we give to others and the grace that we give to ourselves, right? Um, to be accepting of him, but to be also accepting of um, how, how am I worthy of being treated? And that's, and that's how we make sure that grace doesn't become the spiritualized way of permitting mistreatment and abuse and all of those things. Um, and so, um, it's something my wife's really good at too. She gives me all sorts of grace and I talk about that, but she also, um, expects to be treated as worthy. And so, um, I think that's the, that's the place that we're all in is trying to find that balance. Um, and, and realizing that grace is, um, interested in loving all of us equally and making sure we're all treated equally worthy. So, um, I, I admire you for recognizing the, what he comes home with. 
um, and, um, and, and the love that you're giving him in doing that and encourage you to continue to, um, to do that and to also um, seek that balance where you are given grace as well. Deb F. writes, to grow in grace towards others, but particularly myself these days. I find the more I forgive and accept myself, the more forgiving and gracious I am towards others. Yeah, it's a, Deb, that, that is a segue into the, what we're going to talk about next, because that that is where we're headed here. This is not primarily first and foremost about, okay, now how do I, how do I surround myself with people who can give me that kind of grace? It's about how can this process play out within me the way it did with my daughter in that reading from Lovable. It's an internal process of listening for that voice. Um, and then as we practice receiving grace inside of us, we, we, we then um, give from our abundance and can extend grace to others. So it starts with an internal process. Um, and I think something that I'd want to add to that story about my experience in therapy is that uh, I think I think it was probably the first time I recognized it was like I heard I felt like I heard grace on the outside of me and and it, it matched something that I had begun to hear on the inside of me and and that that's the key is to recognize that that voice of grace um, is whispering within you all the time um, and it is lovely to have it affirmed and reflected outside of us. It's easier to hear, it's easier to listen for when other people are saying it. Um, but until we can can get in the habit of listening for it internally and hearing it internally, um, then we become dependent upon others and disappointed in them when they're not giving us the grace we need. Um, and so it can sort of come back to bite us. So this, this week is about transitioning to listening, not just for that grace around us, but that grace inside of us. Um, and ironically, and I want to share this with you, um, uh, I've mentioned Henry Nouwen all the time here. I consider him sort of my spiritual father in a way. Um, he, he, he was, it was his writing that sort of, um, precipitated, uh, uh, spiritual awakening for me, and um, and so I'm, I'm reading through his new uh, and his new yearly journal, and there will be some rustling here because I'm grabbing some papers. It's entitled "You Are the Beloved: uh, Daily Meditations for Spiritual Living" by Henry Nouwen, um, and so I'm reading through that this year as my sort of daily devotional. And uh, today's devotional of all things um, was this. I want to read it to you. January 10, the trap of self-rejection. Over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am a nobody. My dark side says, I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Um, so as you can see from that reading, Henry Nouwen's work and words are all over my, <laughs> my way of seeing the world and experiencing myself in my writing. Already when my therapist said that, I had begun to trust 
that the voice of grace was inside of me. Um, and he was giving me a way of going, oh, that's what, that is what it sounds like. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's so important. It's, a, it's a, been a transitional point for me as a therapist as well, because if, if a client becomes a, dependent upon me as their voice of grace, now I've just created an addiction to me and to the therapy. Um, my job as a therapist is to help, help our, my clients get connected with the voice of grace within them so they can be free to go out into the world and, and uh, stay connected to that voice. Um, I don't want a dependency upon me. Um, I want a connection with the voice of grace. So that's, that's, the, that's the direction we're heading here in these months is, is listening for that voice of grace internally. So now we're going to transition into this week's practice, and I want you to remember that these are the months of listening. So this practice of listening for the voice of grace is really sort of the whole point. Um, today's practice will in a way be an introduction to all the other practices that follow. So here we go. Week 12 practice. My clients can often become frustrated when we start talking about the voice of grace. Usually they have come to me because their relationships are not working and they are seeking some help to get the love they want. That is, they are trying to figure out how to find a voice of grace outside of themselves. The thing is, though, we cannot truly hear grace spoken from the outside of us until we have first been able to hear it on the inside of us. I was able to receive my wife's grace and tell the story above because first I was able to hear the voice of grace whispering within me, reminding me of my light. This happens slowly over time with a great deal of intention. So as I tell my clients, the core task of the rest of your life is to listen for the voice of grace within you. This week, you will simply begin one thing. You will begin to listen for the voice of grace inside of you. You do not need to make this voice speak. It is always speaking. All you need to do is become more intentional about listening for it and more capable of recognizing it when you have heard it. This exercise builds on all the previous exercises. In other words, when you have noticed the voice of your shame and press pause on it, you won't simply sit in silence and emptiness. You will begin listening for an alternative voice. To help you recognize the voice of grace when you have heard it, here are some of its hallmark qualities. Number one, it extends you more compassion and tenderness than you have ever given yourself. Number two, it says things you don't expect to hear, good news that sounds too good to be true. Number three, it believes in you more than you believe in yourself. Number four, it speaks of your light because it is your light. Number five, when you hear it, you will feel hope, maybe like you've never known before. Six, after hearing it, you will begin to feel a profound connection to everyone and everything. That is an incomplete list, a primer to help you get started in your recognizing. You will recognize the voice of grace when you get surprised by the love that has always existed inside of you, too quiet to be heard over the din of shame that is just now beginning to quiet down. As you begin to hear it, you can add to the list above. This is the central practice for the rest of your life. It cannot begin until you have cultivated stillness, stopped running from your pain, and confronted your shame. And once begun, it probably will never end. Of course, once you have heard the voice of grace, you will never want it to end. This week, begin. Listen, grace is whispering of your worthiness. So, um, sitting, waiting, and trusting. If, if someone if someone today told me tell me about your faith I think probably the first thing that would come to mind would be I have a I have a, a faith that the voice of grace is always speaking within me and if I can get myself quieted down enough um, I will eventually be able to hear it again um, and uh, and so that's that's what this week is is about is now in that space that you've carved out for yourself by beginning to eliminate some activities and distractions 
um, by beginning to, uh, you know, as Deb said, watch the flow of your thoughts, your anxiety, anger, thinking, whatever, as you begin to let that pass rather than getting caught up in it, um, as you begin to have uh, an inner stillness, as you say, hey, I'm not taking in any more shame from outside of me. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to create some space in here to listen. This is when we start listening for the voice of grace. Brenda writes, the voice of grace is so healing. Julia writes, thanks for the six articulate reminders of why I'm at 300 days and counting. Mm, yeah, that, that piece I mentioned at the end of it, that once you've heard the voice of grace, um, it, it, it's so reinforcing of all the difficult, sort of difficult practices that we have created stillness and silence that we've, we've talked about so far. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that those resonate, Julie. And if anyone has any other characteristics that they would add, you know, that actually when I hear the voice of grace, this is what comes to mind. This is the, this is the indicator that I've heard it. Um, I think I've told the story in the podcast before uh, about uh, a shame spiral I went into over the summer where I spent more than 48 hours listening for the voice of grace. Eventually, on a bike ride, heard it. And I'd been really wrestling with uh, sort of a sort of what I thought was a big interview and one that I wanted to do kind of well in, and I didn't. I knew I sort of had not not. What's the word? Well, I'd I'd, I'd gotten protective and defensive, um, and that's not how I give. You know, that's not how I help people. It's not how I give the best interview. And so I, I sort of knew I'd botched it. And this voice of grace comes in on this bike ride. And it doesn't say, no, no, you did everything right. It was perfect. No one noticed. It said, yeah, it's hard to learn on a big stage, Kelly. I'm proud of you for getting up there. Um, and that's the, this the consistent theme of the voice of grace is it doesn't, it's not the, it's not the self-help, reframe the cognition, um, positive psych. It's none of that. Um, it doesn't try to talk you into believing everything's okay. Um, it, it tells you everything's okay, even though <laughs> um, everything is not. Um, and that is a piece that can surpass all understanding. Heather writes, coming to the party late today, but this whole process has led me to this week's reading already, finding that voice that includes grace. Heather, um, thanks, for, thanks for the, uh, the affirmation we all need. Um, because I know you've been really faithful to the practices and trying to create that space. Thank you for that affirmation that the, the voice of grace was indeed waiting for you. Um, and as I point out in Lovable, we can't turn this into a performance thing. Um, it can't be, well, I did all the practices, and now, as Julie said, I'm, I've sat for 300 days and, and I'm hearing the voice of grace regularly. Um, as I point out in Lovable, it might take, you know, my, Caitlin in that story, in Lovable, she she was able to tune into that voice again very quickly. It might take months, years, a decade. So try not to turn this into another reason to be ashamed, to think that you're not not enough once again. Um, just be faithful, create the space, listen, um, and let it be what it is. Deb writes, wow, how these layers have come together over these weeks. I'm impressed and thankful, Kelly. It's been a life changer. Oh, thank you, Deb. Um, again, this is, I think I said it early on, I give, I give credit to my wife um, for layering it correctly. Um, this was not the order I had things in, and uh, she just kept challenging me and saying, you know, um, I think it needs to go this way, and uh, I eventually listened, so I give her all the credit for that. 
Ah, Emily writes, what is your favorite Uncle Henry Nowen book? That's a, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, probably his two of his most popular books are The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a book-long meditation on um, the uh, famous painting of the, the prodigal son returning to the father. And it's a meditation on the son's role, the elder brother's role in the painting, and the father's role. It's beautiful. Um, Life of the Beloved is the, uh, the book that the passage that I read today comes from. Um, that was a, a game changer for me. The book I was reading of his, and when I sort of have what I often refer to as my awakening, was a book called Here and Now, which is just a bunch of different small reflections on, uh, on presence and being present to the voice of grace. So those are three good ones to start with. <laughs> Marilyn writes, With Open Hands is her favorite now in book. Deb W. writes, Yep, stopping all the noise and listening to the voice of grace that's been trying to get our attention this whole time. Thank you for leading us to this truth. You bet, Deb. Um, there's a hallmark of the voice of grace. Once you've heard it, you just want other people to hear it because you, you understand you understand how transformative it can be and you, and you wish that that kind of healing for everybody. So um, thanks for letting me be here and get to pass it on. Deb F. writes, Yes, self-grace. It seems to be the voice that has your back, no matter how bad you think you've failed. Yeah. One of the things I love about it is that it's it often exceeds what you expect, you know? And again, it's why, it's why you're like, because you hear that a lot, a lot from people is, well, I'm just telling myself what I want to hear, you know? Um, and as therapists, I hear that all the time too. You're just telling me what I want to hear. Um, but this, this, this voice sometimes exceeds our expectations so greatly that we don't want to hear it. <laughs> we don't think it's true. Uh, it can't be that good. Um, and uh, to me, that's such a great marker that it's, uh, that indeed you've, You've heard the voice of grace. Wanda writes, first time I am listening to you, hard to hear the voice of grace when everything else so dark, not letting good things come in. Yeah, um, Wanda, you, you just heard me. Thank you for being here for the first time, first of all. Um, and you just heard me talk about my wife's wisdom. In um, I had this, this initial task of listening for the voice of grace, I had in like week two or three. And uh, she's like, Kelly, you can't, you can't expect people. There's too much noise. Um, there's noise from, you know, technology. There's noise from media. There's noise from other people. There's the noisy voice of shame within. You have got to, to help keep people create that space um, and begin cultivate the stillness and the interior space to listen for the voice of grace. So Wanda, I want you to know your experience is absolutely normal. Um, and this being the first time you're listening, um, I'd say, hey, Go back and go back and um, and join us on the journey up to this point, and I think you'll 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 have at least a little bit of a different experience once you arrive here. Um, but thanks for being here with us, and uh, and if you catch up to us, we're going to be here next Wednesday recording again. So we'd love to have you. Thank you everyone for another great discussion. Uh, we're going to wrap up the conversation here this week. Next time we're going to get even more specific as we listen for the voice of grace and allow it to embrace all of our unique and quirky parts those parts of us that make us different. Um, and so they're the things that we like to hide while we're trying to spend our lives fitting in. Um, but they're the things that make us uniquely us. Uh, and we're going to talk about how to listen for the voice of grace, embracing those parts of us. It'll be week 13 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled simply Embracing Your Valuable Flaws. Until then, remember, you don't have to try harder. You just need to listen closer. And you are lovable. Thanks again for joining us on The Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of lovable. 
So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Cause you-